All righty. Welcome to another episode of Canon Calls. I'm your host, Jake McAtee. And this week, I had the privilege to speak with author Greg Crable, author of Eggs Are Expensive, Sperm is Cheap. Before we get started, I wanted to make sure you knew that Cannonball Books, the fiction line from Canon Press, just published George MacDonald's The Princess and the Goblin, a classic fiction book that every household needs. This is the man, after all, that C.S. Lewis said taught him so much. So, go get that at canonpress.com. And additionally, Greg forgot to mention you can find his podcast under the name Beer and Conversation with Pigweed and Crowhill. Now, without further ado, meet Greg Crable. Okay, we now welcome on special guest Greg Crable, author of Eggs Are Expensive and Sperm is Cheap. Greg, thanks so much for coming on. I'm thrilled to be here. It's quite an honor. Thank you very much for inviting me. Absolutely. A striking book, uh, especially with the title, if anybody's seen the cover. It's a tough book to forget. When did you publish the book? So I published it a few years ago. There's a second edition out now. The first edition was published in 2014. Okay. The second second edition was put out uh, in 2019. And I just recently published an audio version of it. Where can they get the audio and make sure that they get the second edition? Well, every, if you buy it off of Audible for the audio, that's the second edition. And Amazon, everything on Amazon, the Kindle, the paperback, and the audio version are all second edition. Okay, great. great. The, the only way you'd get the first edition is if you tried to buy it from a, you know, that, that option where you can buy from other sender, other sellers? Yes, on You Amazon. might get a first edition. Yeah, you might get a first edition that way. But if you buy it straight from Amazon, you're going to get the second edition. Okay, awesome. Sounds great. Now... Would you mind opening us up here? Can you give us a lay of the land in which sort of your book fits or another way you talk about it in your book? Can you maybe explain to us fish about the water we swim in? Sure. So the basic message here is that we've all been fed a perspective on the sexes and the culture is kind of steeped in it. And there are various there are various tenets of this idea that we've been steeped in. And and one of them is anything that can be said about men can be said about women and vice versa, except when that disadvantages women. It's a weird kind of quasi egalitarianism. And and if you read the book, you kind of get a sense for how do you put the details on that. But basically, we have this environment where we've been sold a package of goods. We've been told that First of all, that we're kind of a blank slate, that culture can write on us however it likes, that a lot of the things that we attribute to masculinity and femininity are things that the culture imposed on us. They're not natural to us as human beings. It's something that it could be changed if we wanted to. And we've been, we've been absorbing this through TV, through our friends, through our parents, through even through pastors and, and religious leaders, a very distorted view of what uh, men and women are supposed to be and what the relationship between men and women are supposed to be. And there's been a reaction against it. It's called the men's rights movement. And I don't agree with tons of what they say. I do agree with some of it. They do make some really good points about how we've gone too far in in a this distorted, twisted type of egalitarianism. Yeah. And I imagine as anybody 
uh, as people especially hear our conversation, even if, let's say, uh, there's things that you will talk about that the majority of my listeners would agree with, there may still be things where the culture has at least taught us how to react to them, where like you kind of cringe up or... Um, does that make sense? You know, where you're like, oh, I know that's not going to sound good. Or it, 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 we've been, it seems like we have been uh, really worked over and chased around in ways that we may not know, which is, seems why you wrote the book. Yeah. And it's interesting if you listen to certain personalities on the TV and on the radio, one common response to a lot of the popular folk is you're saying the things that I've been thinking for years, right. but have been, have been afraid to say. That's a very, very common theme. And and what does that tell us? That tells us that we all know these things deep down. We have a sense of what's what's right, but we've been suppressing it. We've been afraid to say it. Sure. And part of the part, point of this book is to just give people permission to think a different way. You know, we've been sold this bill of goods. We've been told that things are a certain way. And I, what I hope is that after people read this little book, it's a pretty short book, after they read this little book, it kind of gives them some clues of things to look for, things to listen for, but mostly just to give themselves permission to not follow the dominant narrative. That's good. That's good. So the title of the book, Eggs Are Expensive, Sperm is Cheap, uh, a bit crass, but you do <laughs> say in your book that this is a fundamental thing and it actually affects a lot downhill from that in the book. So can you tell us more about the title? Sure. So I didn't come up with it. It's a, it's a phrase that other people have used. And the basic point of it is that for a woman, um, she is not able to get pregnant all the time, right? She's only fertile certain days of the month. If she does get pregnant, it has a substantial effect on her life and on her health. For, for a long period of time. For a man to father a child really isn't much of an investment at all, speaking just simply biologically. So the man and the woman both approach the whole question of mating from in completely different perspectives. The woman, now, now realize I'm speaking about before contraception. Contraception <laughs> changes, the, changes the whole equation, which is maybe something we could talk about later. But what I'm, what I say, what I mean is, humans have a nature. You know, uh, cats have a certain nature, and giraffes have a certain nature, and fish have a certain nature, and humans have a certain nature. And that nature that we have basically is uh, the way we are because that's what worked well for us as human beings in terms of getting along. And and men approach mating from one perspective based on their biology. And women approach mating from a completely different perspective because of their biology. And it's, it's just really stupid to imagine that men and women would have the same interests in, in this game, in this uh, cooperation, in this dance, or however you want to put it. So you really need to start by thinking about why, why do we do the things we do? Like, for example, why do we say uh, women and children first when the ship is going down? I was just listening to a podcast about the the Branch Davidians in Waco and the the mess that happened there. And the the biggest concern was getting the children out, right? We we and the women, the children and the women. And we have a very very different attitude towards men and women and we all know it. We're just afraid to admit it. You mentioned in the book an image that I really appreciated was a poker game 
where the ante mm. for men is one leaf and the ante for women is five ounces of gold. <laughs> right. So the man doesn't, you know, it just, I'm not talking about being morality or, or law or anything like that. I'm just from a pure, purely biological, you know, naturalistic perspective. What does the man lose in the mating? You know, nothing. He, he's, half an hour of his time and that's it. There's no obligation after that. Um, the woman could get pregnant and now she's got, you know, nine months of carrying a child and then some number of years after that of caring for this little guy. So it's a completely different, uh, they both have a whole lot at risk or the woman has a lot at risk. The man has virtually nothing at risk. And since you brought this up, I, th I think we have to realize that one of the things society does is tries to change that by saying, by putting obligations on men. If you get a woman pregnant, you've got to care for her. You've, you know, you've got to care for the child. Well, that's not something that's natural. That's something that, that society imposes on this relationship in, in a good way. I'm completely in favor of it. Sure. Society imposes that obligation on men to try to even the stakes a little bit. Right. Right. So, um, with, with the stakes game, uh, it sounds. It seems to me, and this sort of being the fountainhead, right? If I'm, if I understand your thesis correctly, and sort of how it shapes your book, in terms of stakes, how men approach relationships with, in terms of their what what's at risk for them and what's at risk for women, that has uh, implications all the way through, and of course is going to inform interests and everything else. And something that you sort of hinted at there and you do in your book as well, is talking about this in terms of commodity or economy, which may be a bit crass or harsh to the ear. But can you talk about that metaphor and what it gets at? What, what does that metaphor get that someone who rejects that entirely will miss? Does that make sense? Yeah. So there's a, there's a great video that I recommend from, I think it's from the Heartland Institute. It's called The Economics of Sex. And it's a, it's a really good short video that you can find it on YouTube that explains how, how there's a transaction going on. You know, men and women are bringing different things to the table. And if you think of this in terms of, I, I like to say traditional. And when I say traditional, it's a confusing word, right? Because which tradition are we talking about? Are we talking about, you know, Abraham having several wives and Solomon having several wives? Or are we talking about, you know, which culture? So when I say traditional, what I mean is 17th, 18th century Western, uh, Westernized morality. So I like to, know, to make it easier to understand, I think, say, uh, think about Sherlock Holmes in his day, right? So if you have a young man in Sherlock Holmes's day, where the, the law and the culture and the commandments he was raised with said no sex until marriage. So what does this young man have to do in order to have sex? He's got to uh, be respectable. He's got to get an education. He's got to get a job. He's got to be presentable. He's got to go to the father and ask permission even to speak to this young lady. He's got to get... Uh, win the favor, not only of this young woman, but of her family. He's got to have prospects. He's got to have a job. He's got to commit himself to a lifelong marriage where he is responsible for her and for any children she happens to have, whether they're his or not, just by the way, but still 
uh, he's committing himself to this obligation to be the her husband and to care for her. He has to do all these things before he even gets a chance to have sex with her. So that is that society, that that kind of tradition imposes a huge burden on men to jump through a bunch of hoops to make an exchange. And what that does is it elevates the woman's position dramatically. See, the woman is now bringing a lot to the table. She's saying, look, you want me? Okay, here's what you got to do. And it's not only her saying that, it's her father, and it's the culture, and it's the church, and it's the law, and it's everything else, right? So what that does is it puts the woman in a very strong bargaining position where she has, she can demand what she wants. Now contrast that with what we have today. Today, there's an assumption that the woman is infertile because she's using contraception. There's an assumption that, you know, sex, what's the big deal? Everybody's having sex, who cares? It totally changes what the woman has to exchange. She can't be as picky. She can't be as, as saying, no, if you want me, you gotta do X, Y, and Z. Um, there's a, there's a song that that goes into this. It's a really good song that'll occur to me in a minute, but the Georgia satellites, keep your hands to yourself. And what, what it says is the woman is saying, no, keep your hands to yourself until I got a ring on my finger. Well, that puts the woman in an entirely different trading position than what our modern culture does. Our modern culture actually in supposedly to try to liberate women, what it really does is takes away all their bargaining chips. Yeah, it's uh, and I'm just I've totally forgotten the author, but a similar uh, something that uh, a book that rhymed with a lot of this was Cheap Sex uh, from the mm. sociologist in Texas. Um, That's right. Yeah, actually, I listened to your interview with him. It was very good, and I, I listened to one of his um, one of his YouTube videos as well. And he's making similar arguments. That's right. Yeah, and just the fact that um, what you were stating about 16th and 17th century life was just a matter of fact. It wasn't even the sense of a, a, a male trying to gain the system. It was just a state of fact. Like she would need someone who could uh, provide. Um, it's not, right. it's not, you know, she was just not prepped to do the coal mine situation. Yeah. There's a, there's a strange kind of creationism going on in the world today. The creationism that's going on in the world today is this idea that, that, you know, a dog has a nature and a cow has a nature and an ant has a nature and a pig has a nature, but humans, we don't, we, we just are, we're a blank slate and whatever society writes on us, that's the way we are. And it leads to the kind of nonsense that we're hearing, you know, people being able to choose their sex and, and all, all the silliness that we hear in culture today basically comes from a denial of the concept of human nature. And, and when I say that there's a human nature, I mean that over thousands and thousands and thousands of years, the people who behaved a certain way passed on those genes to their descendants, right? Yep. The, a, a human, if you, had, if you had a race of human beings where the men all loved men and the women all loved women, uh, that race wouldn't last very long because the next generation, they'd all be gone, right? So the things that have been passed along, the, the people who have survived, have survived because they were effective at passing along their genes to the next generation. And, and what that does is that we've passed along habits and attitudes and, and things that we do. And one thing that's been impressed recently on my mind very strongly is that there are so many things that we do and we don't even understand that we do them. For example, uh, English speakers 
naturally know uh, a rule that non-English speakers have to learn when they're trying to learn English. And the rule has to do with the order that you put adjectives in, in front of a noun. Like you don't say the, the brown big dog. You say the big brown dog, right? Right. And, and there's, there's a whole rule, there's an order that these adjectives go in. And the first time you, you read it, you think, what in the heck? You've been doing it all your life, but you don't even know that you've been doing it. It's just, it's just something that you picked up. So there's a lot of things in life that way. There, there are jokes that we laugh at. There are you know, attitudes that we have towards men and women. There are, there are different things that we do. We don't even know the rules that we're following all the time. Right. And I think, I think part of what we have to do in order to be self-aware, in order to understand who we are and, and how we live in the world, is we need to start paying attention to those things. We need to start asking ourselves, why is this joke funny? Hmm. We need to start saying, you know, when, when someone says such and so about men or women, flip the terms around and see what happens. When someone talks about a violence against women act, which I mean, who wants violence against women, right? Um, flip it around and say, well, what would happen if we had a violence against men act? Right. Um, you know, how would people react to that? So I think as you start to pay attention to the way people speak, the way they behave, uh, the things that they assume, the things that they laugh at, you start to see that this whole egalitarian idea is just a bunch of nonsense. And it's kind of hard to imagine why people believe it. Now, uh, about halfway through, you seem to change the subject and discuss, you start to discuss the principle behind every state getting two senators. Uh, <laughs> and right. I thought that was a great little a seeming change of subject, just because I see, you know, this just today, I saw a meme of that somebody posted where they highlighted California and put two senators, 40 million people. And then they, the meme also highlighted like a ton of other states that got up to 40 million people and put, you know, two senators each as well, trying to show that like how silly this is that we do such a thing. So I thought it was a very great metaphor. Can you go into the principle there that you're trying to get at? Sure. So the question there is, what's being represented. And, and what I'm trying to do is, is bring it around to a topic that comes up frequently when you talk about men and women, and, and that is voting. So the question with the senators is, why does a, a state get two senators? And it doesn't matter if it's Rhode Island or if it's California or Texas or Montana. They vastly different in size and in population, but they all get two senators. Well, why is that? because we are the United States of America, right? We're, we're a bunch of states that are united. And in our form of government, we want every state to be equally represented, represented in the Senate. Now, not in the House. In the House, it's more proportional. But in the Senate, we want each state to be represented. So the, what's going on there is Rhode Island has two senators because the sovereign state of Rhode Island has to be represented just as much as the sovereign state of California. So then you start asking things like, well, there are counties in Texas that are bigger than Rhode Island. There, there are counties in Texas that have more population than Rhode Island. You know, so, so what's going on here? And it all comes down to what's being represented. And, and the way that ties back to the question of voting is a lot of people look back on the fact that women didn't used to vote as this, this um, patriarchal thing that 
men had all the power and women had no power and wasn't this awful. And believe me, I'm, I'm not in any way defending not letting women vote. Okay, I think women should vote. That's, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying, though, is you have to stop and ask yourself, well, what was being represented? If you want to form a government, like if you want to form the United States of America, what's being represented? Well, in the Senate, states are be, being represented. In the House, uh, the, the population more generally is being represented. In the, in the White House, you know, one guy who is selected by the whole country is being represented. In the courts, something else is being represented, right? So we have all these different considerations going on in what's going on here. Now, the modern idea is to reduce everything down to the will of the people, you know, a vote, everybody votes, and that's the end of that. Raw democracy. Yeah, but that's not the way our country was founded, and there's a lot of good reasons for that, and we can't go too deeply into that. What was being represented by a vote in the old days was the family, right? You have to decide what's the fundamental unit of society. Is the fundamental unit the, the, the state, the county, the neighborhood, the, the block, the family, the person, the individual person? And nowadays, we think it's the individual person. That's who's being represented, so that's who votes. And that's a perfectly valid, good thing. But what if somebody felt that the fundamental building block of society was the family? Then it would make sense to have one person in each family vote. It just so happened that that was mostly the men. It wasn't always the men. There were situations where, where widows would vote for their family. But, but the point of that whole exercise was to, was to get people out of the mindset of thinking of everything in terms of radical individual rights. And everything comes down to what the individual wants. That's not always the best way to do things. And I'm, believe me, I'm totally in favor of women voting. So I'm not, don't let anybody think that I'm saying <laughs> something different. But, no, right. but I, the, the the thing that I want people to realize is when they see some thing in the past that by, by our modern interpretation seems like a horrible thing, rather than just assuming that you're, you know, you're so brilliant and moral and everybody in the past was awful, maybe take a minute to think about why they did it that way. Maybe they had some other priority in mind. Maybe they were thinking about things some other way, because a lot of people would say, that the family is a, the fundamental unit of society. It's the family that teaches children to be good citizens, teaches them how to, how to behave. That, you know, without the family doing that work, you're not going to have a society. So it's, it's reasonable when you... So I remember one time somebody told... Well, this is a long story. But the, the, way, the resolution to this long story is when somebody's position seems so crazy and stupid that you can't believe that they hold it, you probably are misunderstanding it. Hmm. Probably they're looking at it, some, the issue a way that you're not expecting. Yeah, I think and what you're describing, it was said once by Chesterton by just before you rip the fence down, you should ask yourself why the fence was put there. Exactly. You know, you know the qualification for, for fence rippers is only that you understand why it was put there in the first place. Mm -hmm. That's uh, right. As we move to the back side of your book, uh, before I kind of have you talk about it at large, I wanted to ask, I just wanted to read you uh, sort of, uh, I guess these would function sort of as rules. Um, I just want to read them to you and then just have you sort of react or give me an explanation. Explain yourself uh, okay. for these. So first one um that i just can't imagine goes goes over well for you always is women seek to control men 
and then they despise the men they control. Can you talk about that one? Sure. So women react to to uh, strong, assertive men. Now, not everybody's going to be happy about with that thought, and a lot of people will deny it. They'll say, no, we like nice guys. Okay, fine. You don't really. And there's a lot of studies that, that demonstrate that. The truth of the matter is that a, that a dominant male attracts women. Now, other things attract women, and women are complicated, and they have all kinds of different things going on here. So I'm, you know, I'm not trying to say that this is the, the one thing. But it is true that dominant men attract women. That's why Magic Johnson and, you know, uh, the king of Thailand and all these get lots and lots of women because they are dominant men. And do dominant men, whether it's for, because of money or because of physical prowess or simply because of their uh, assertiveness and their character, women tend to be attracted to that. Now, women, there's, there's this thing that the men's rights advocates will talk about frequently called a, pardon the French, a shit test. And the idea is that the woman will say, here, hold my purse. You know, you're in the mall here, hold my purse or, or uh, something else to kind of test the guy. And I don't like the way that is expressed in the men's rights movement because they almost make it sound like it's an intentional thing. And I don't think it's intentional. I think what is going on is this, just in the normal course of life, Generally speaking, the man's going to annoy the woman and the woman's going to annoy the man. And when the woman annoys the man, she's kind of watching how he responds. Is he responding as uh, a dominant fellow? Is he responding as a somebody she can respect, somebody she can look up to? Or is he some sort of shrinking violet who gives in all the time and, and capitulates? And women don't like that. They don't want a guy who's who's always... Uh, always giving up, right? You, she's not going to respect him in the long term. And I think what happens is women try to control a man, but if they can control him, they realize, gosh, I'm, I'm 110 pounds dripping wet. I can control this guy. He must be a tar terrible wimp. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. That's a great one. And then um, the man is the head of the home. And then what I loved about sort of this section was um, you even sort of push back against someone saying, well, you mean generally, right? <laughs> can, can you talk about that? Well, yeah. So, so there's a couple things I need to clarify there. One is I don't explain a whole lot in that section about what the man of the head of the home means, because basically the whole book is about how the man is the head of the home. Right. And I, I just kind of mention it there and throw out a, a couple of details. But the man is the head of the home for, for the similar reasons that I just mentioned, which is that women don't respect men who aren't the head of the home. Now, they might say differently and, and OK, fine, you know, people are different and maybe there are situations where people want to do things their way. Fine. Everybody it's a free country. Everybody can live their life their own way. But generally speaking, uh, women respect strong, assertive, dominant men. And th this isn't a matter of. Uh, the woman giving the man permission to be the head of the home. This is that's the kind of man who should that a woman's going to be attracted to. The man is the head of the home. He should act that way. Yeah, I think uh, we have a book that we talk about um, where the author talks about the man is the head of the home. 
And even let's say like in the in an absentee father situation, the empty chair at dinner speaks louder than anything else and usually sort of uh, sets the tone for the house in a way, you know, even though he isn't there. You know, it's it's sort of a thing built into nature. That's right. Yeah, he's the head of the home. And if he's not there, that just means that's a headless home. Right. Right. Very good. Um, now, the back end there, there are several major caveats, um, not even just in the back end. In the whole book, you give, and even in the podcast, you've given major caveats uh, that, unfortunately, you kind of have to do that dance these days uh, about what you're not up to or things that folks can assume about you or your intentions, um, which, you know, I do wish the best of luck to you on that. Um <laughs> but what I think is sort of the best part of your book is the back half and how you sort of wrap it up in sort of uh, general rules for, for guys to chase down. And really none of those added up to, to raping and pillaging and taking what you want. <laughs> you know, usually the usual man tropes that you'll, you'll hear. So, I mean, for example, uh, you know, you can talk about some of these, but you emphasize things like communication, um, dressing well, exercising. No sex outside of marriage, no porn, et cetera. Do you mind talking about sort of that back half and the motivation uh, behind it? Sure. So, well, there's a lot There's a lot of things. The way you prefaced the question, what I thought you were getting at was a lot of people think that when somebody proposes some idea, whatever the idea is, that what they want then is legislation to, to you know, to enforce <laughs> that. And and that's the farthest thing from my mind. I'm very libertarian. I don't, I don't, I, fewer laws, the better, generally speaking. So I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to get laws passed and I'm not trying to tell anybody what to do, but I think, uh, the, the things that you're highlighting there are there's, there's the, the dominant narrative that we hear growing up all this faux egalitarian stuff, but then there's also the men's rights activist narrative that's also out there. And that's the idea of figure out ways to trick women into bed with you. You know, here, here, are, here are sneaky things that you can say and do and try to trick women into thinking that you're the kind of person that she wants to be with so you can sleep with her, right? And I'm, I'm saying, no, we don't, we don't want the faux egalitarianism, but we also don't want this disgusting, uh, just use women and go on to the next one kind of an attitude either. The, what the culture needs, what society needs, what men and women need, and especially what children need, is stable, solid families. And the way to build a stable, solid family is not the egalitarian nonsense, and it's not what the men's rights activists are saying. It's, you have to, you have to take the good things where you find them. And men need to learn to be respectable. They need to learn to stand up straight and hold their shoulders back. They should dress well. I, I like to tell people, you know, I, I uh, have, am fair skinned and the sun doesn't do well on me. So I wear a hat and I, I find it's very interesting that when I exercise and keep my weight down, lots of attractive women compliment my hat. It's a very interesting thing. But anyway, lots of uh, things that men should do is they should learn to be respectable people. They, you, one of the things I highlight in the book is that you can divide the kinds of traits that men have into alpha traits and beta traits. The alpha traits are kind of the dominant risk-taking, uh, rough and tumble kind of traits. And the beta traits are the uh, supportive and helpful and kind sorts of traits. Now, women are attracted to the alpha traits, but they appreciate the beta traits. 
And what a man needs to do is be both of those things. He needs to be an assertive, strong man, but he also needs to, uh, he needs to be sort of an, an iron fist in a velvet glove. He needs to be soft and tender and uh, appreciate his wife and, and help her and uh, be kind to her and deal with her where she is. So you don't want men who are alpha uh, jerks and you don't want men who are going to drop their weapon and retreat you know, in, in battle, you want, you want somebody who's a blend of those two things. Totally. And I think, like I said, it was, it was a fantastic way to finish your book. And I would hope if people are reading your book who are more or less hate reading it, that, (laughs) you know, that back half is something that's, you know, what are you proposing at worst? You know, like you said, you're not going for legislation. What you're asking for largely is to equip men to take on as much responsibility as possible. Yes. And I think that's a key point is that men need to get out of their parents' basements. They need to get jobs. They need to be responsible. They need to be respectable. They need to, you know, work hard at their jobs. They need to treat women with respect and they need to make themselves into somebody that a woman would be attracted to. And then when they find the right woman, they need to then be a, a, a good husband and a good man in that relationship. So I'll ask, are you optimistic about this endeavor? No, um, not at all. And the reason is that there are so many different parts of our culture that are screaming lies and stupidity at us constantly. And it's, that's what's dominating the, the mind share, if you will. That's, that's what people are really, uh, that's what people are thinking. And I don't think that a more traditional view of sexuality or the roles of men and women is going to happen anytime soon. But I do think that there are pockets. You know, right now, right now we're living through this coronavirus thing and they're talking about pop- pockets of the virus bursting out. What I'd like to see is pockets of traditional, reasonable views on morality and on men's and women's issues burst out here and there. And, you know, maybe then it can it can get some momentum and maybe it can take take over the culture eventually, maybe. But I don't see a lot of hope for it because Hollywood is screaming the wrong thing. Madison Avenue is screaming the wrong thing. Government is screaming the wrong thing. A lot of a lot of pulpits in the country are screaming the wrong thing. So, no, I'm not optimistic. (laughs) Well. The good news is, I suppose, that uh, stupid really doesn't last very long. And if anything, <laughs> you know, the more that they subsidize and create the kind of men that that the opposite of the kind of men you are after, uh, you know, things will not go for very long um, there. So uh, I can't recommend the book enough. Go get the book. It's on all the usual places, Audible, Amazon. I read a Kindle version. Um, and hopefully we can make men to catch stuff when it all hits the fan, huh? That would be nice. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much, Greg. I really appreciate Thank your you. time again and uh, all the success to you. All right. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs>